0: and welcome to Something Rhymes With Purple, the podcast with wordy witterings about language Uh, I witter and my co-host Giles Miranda tells me about words or is it the other way around (laughs) it is the other
1: way around (laughs) let's face it honestly
0: (laughs) hello anyway lovely to see you
1: the phrase wittering um, there's a place called wittering isn't there Um, there
0: is isn't there West Wittering and East Wittering
1: uh, and, and maybe there's Wittering Central I don't know I certainly would feel at home there to witter on people always accusing me of wittering on I don't know if I've turned you this, but I, I, I was sent to boarding school when I was quite young. Yeah. And I always thought it was because my parents didn't like me. But I've only recently discovered from one of my sisters, I published a, a kind of childhood memoir called Odd Boy Out, and I sent a copy to my sister. She phoned me up and said to me, you know, you you weren't sent away to boarding school because we didn't, the, your parents didn't like you, childs. You were sent away to boarding school because you wouldn't stop talking. said, "Tell me more." And she said, "You just non—you talked non-stop, and it was getting the parents down, and it was getting us down." I had three older sisters, and they said, "She said we got together oh. and we pulled, We said we'll we'll we contribute our pocket money to pay for the school fees." So he <laughs> was sent away to give us some peace and quiet at home. So clearly, uh. I've been wittering for a very long time. Where does the word wittering come from?
0: It's probably a variant on "witter" with an "h," which in the 16th century meant to warble or twitter. Oh, so you're like it's like the twittering of a bird. So much goes back <laughs> to the twittering of birds. Remember jargon as well. Jargon was originally the twittering of our feathered friends, because obviously it means everything to them and nothing at all to anybody else. Uh, I love that jargon.
1: Oh, how interesting! Yeah. A jargon mm. is a language, as it were, exclusive. Was it originally exclusive to the birds? To birds? Yes, how interesting i I somehow, when you mentioned the bird connection, assumed it was as in jar night jar, a type of bird called a jar j a r
0: oh interesting is yeah there a no, that, there? who knows? no, I don't think so. but I'm going to look it up now because that's that will be a lovely trail if it is true. um a harsh in harmonious sound or combination of sounds as in that's jarring and a vibration or tremulous movement so maybe it is about the song. Reference to bird and insects. Oh, a representation of the harsh vibratory sound. So maybe it is all about jarring noises and uh, not to do with jargoon.
1: But maybe it is.
0: You never know. You never know.
1: That's the mystery. That's the wonder of the world of words and language. But we're not talking about birds today. What are we talking
0: about? Well, do you remember recently we talked uh, in our podcast called Chenille, we talked about insects and we only really scratched the surface. So we thought we've got the bug for bugs. We're going to beetle through, I'm blaming the producers for this, (laughs) beetle through the origins of uh, some of our other friends, six-legged
1: friends. Good. Okay. Well, we've mentioned bug, being snug as a bug in a rug. Uh,
0: You'll like this because it was first mentioned in a play from 1769 that was staged by David Garrick. Uh who was a celebrated Shakespearean actor, wasn't he?
1: Not only that, he was really the founder of reviving the big revivals of Shakespeare. He did the first Shakespeare celebrations in Stratford-upon-Avon. David Garrick, Mm. absolutely. And there's still a Garrick Theatre in the West End of London. There is a Garrick Club uh, for people involved in the world of theatre, and lots of lawyers belong to it too, in Garrick Street in London. Yes, he still is a major figure to reckon with.
0: Well... The way that he uses it in this play suggests very much that "snug as a bug in a rug" was already around, because obviously the audience would have had to recognize it. And it goes like, if she has the mopuses," which was a slang word for money, I'll have her as snug as a bug in a rug. I'm not quite sure what the having uh, means there, but we can glide on from there. and it was used by Benjamin Franklin, who used it to memorialize a pet squirrel, and he says, "Here skug, lie snug as a bug." in a rug, and Skugg was the nickname for the squirrel. I love so that. So it's lovely, isn't it? It's, it goes back a lot. I, it is all born for its sound, I'm absolutely sure. Snug itself uh, has nautical origins. So it was the trim, neat design of a ship that made it seaworthy, uh, really and capable of riding out a storm. And then it came to mean something that fitted closely but comfortably. And now if you are snug, you are kind of cocooned, aren't you, in a very cosy hideout.
1: Two of my favourite words are snug and cosy. Two lovely oh, little four-letter words that make you feel secure. I'm, I'm feeling yeah. snug. And part of a, a public house, uh, the little room, yes. used to be called The Snug. There yeah. was a TV series. There is a TV series called Coronation Street. And when I began watching it many years ago, when it began in the early 1960s, there were three elderly, or maybe was it four old ladies, who spent time in The Snug, at the back of the pub. And I suppose it was called A Snug because it was cosy.
0: It's gorgeous, isn't it? And I think bug is quite interesting in itself as well, because originally it didn't mean the sort of insects, all the, you know, we talk about bed bugs and things, but it originally referred to a hobgoblin or even a scarecrow. Mm. So that was kind of how it started off. And then, yeah, particularly little insects that bite people and suck their blood. So the idea, I guess, is of something kind of mischievous and impish.
1: Good. When I was a Child, I loved the stories about two characters called Ant and Bee. Do you remember these little books? Did you no. do them with your daughters? Ant and Bee, wonderful characters. I'm trying to remember who the author was. was it Was it Helen Bannerman? Anyway, I, I, I'm, I'll check that out. But Ant and Bee, they were delightful little storybooks. And, of course, in this country we have two characters called Ant and Deck, who are television <laughs> presenters. Um, Ant, as a word. Uh, has that been around a long time?
0: It has been around for a long time. So it's um, a borrowing from uh, Germanic. So you'll find it in Old English. And it came from a word that originally was spelt Emmet, A-E-M-E-T-E. And anyone who lives in Britain's Cornwall will recognise Emmet because there it's the equivalent of Devon's Grockle. And Emmet is a slang, slightly derogatory term for, maybe affectionate, I'm not sure, for an, a tourist because they run all over the place like ants. Oh. <laughs> um but yeah, so they're all related, as is feeling antsy, as though you've got ants in your pants. If you're feeling antsy, you've got you're sort of a bit agitated and restless. And the ants pants, this is in Australian English. Can you can you guess what that might mean?
1: The oh, pant- It's the
0: ants pants. No. Have a think of similar formulations like the cat's whiskers. or the, oh, bee's, the bee's knees, knees or the, the dog's ant's bogus. pants. Uh, so that's what it means. The ant's pants is outstandingly good.
1: Very good. I like that, the ant's pants.
0: I like that too. Before
1: people get in touch to say it wasn't Helen Bannerman, she wrote quite different stories. The Ant and Bee's stories, I've just checked this now, they were written by Angela Banner. So there was a little bit ah. The Angela Banner, which was the pseudonym of Angela Mary Madison. Born 1923, died 2014, and she began writing these books to teach her son how to read. And the first volume was published in the UK in 1950, which explains why in the early 1950s my mother obviously used these to help me learn to read. And I just loved both Ant and Bee. They are delightful. I don't know if they're still in print, but if you are wanting to do some reading with your small children, if you're listening to this, I do recommend from my childhood the Ant and Bee stories. Lovely. Uh, Never mind B, what about the beetle?
0: Oh, the beetle. So the origin of the beetle, really, if you take it all the way back, is an ancestor that gave us bite as well. So not all beetles are biting. We need some good entomologists here amongst the purple people. But beetle is such a lovely, lovely name. I mean, it gave us the lovely little Volkswagen that was produced in the 1930s. And apparently that was so cool because... Uh, Someone described it in a motor magazine as looking like a beetle on stilts. Mm. You can sort of see that. I'm not sure about the stilts bit, but you can sort of see the shape of the beetle, can't you?
1: When I was a little boy, talking of the early 1950s, we had a beetle car and there was a little bit at the back where I stood up. I mean, sometimes I sat in the front on my father's lap and he let me do the driving. No
0: seat belts. Oh, no, I of see. Course, oh, no yes, seat belts. I used to love doing that. I, I lo- love. That. Oh, I
1: love doing that. No seat belts. And indeed, I did totally the driving when he was lighting his cigarette, um, however <laughs> fast we were going. But there was a, a thing at the back of the Beetle where you put the luggage. There was a kind of place where, as a small child, you could stand inside.
0: Oh, that's very cool. But I tell you what, I would love more than a Beetle car. My, my dad also had a Beetle car that was bright green. He always chose cars that were really lovely, but then of a hideous mm. colour. We had a bright yellow car as well for a while. But anyway, more than a beetle, I would love a Vespa. That's my ultimate ambition, transport-wise, is to have a little Vespa. And do you know where that comes
1: from? Now, that is, I think that's going to be the word for wasp. Is it the Italian for wasp?
0: Absolutely right. Yes. The ultimate origin of wasp and Vespa, indeed, is a word that meant to weave because wasps chew up wood into this kind of papery substance and then they weave it to construct their nests.
1: And for some reason, Vespa takes me to WASPs and takes me to the French word for WASP, which is GEP, G-U-E-P-E. Yes. And I've got a folk memory of the G-U being interchangeable with W in other languages so that you get, as it were, guichet in French, gives you wicket.
0: Yeah, I think it's all about us adapting foreign sounds to our English tongue. There's another example where an E acute in French with a T, étoile, for example, became ST for us because that was easier for us to pronounce. Étoile became star. And lots and lots of examples of that um, as well. So very often we kept with those words for a while, particularly after the Normans came and we spoke in this hybrid of of English and and Norman French. And then eventually it moved so that it was more palatable to um, our mouths rather than the French.
1: A wasp with a sting gives us waspish has that been around as an expression for a long time, to, to describe someone as a bit waspish?
0: Yes, it has. Just just before that, I should explain the link with the Vespa, which is that the little buzzing that you, you know, ah. you, you just hear a Vespa go past. I mean, it's part of its charm, isn't it? And it sounds a little bit like a rather gentle wasp, I would say. I remember talking to Chris Packham, who is, for those who don't know him outside Britain probably, is one of our best and most loved naturalists, um, essentially, uh, who presents programmes called Spring Watch and Autumn Watch. Anyway, he's incredible. I remember asking him what his favourite creature of all was, and he said the wasp, because looking at those nests, they are so intricate and they are so clever. But obviously, he didn't like the fact that adjectives like waspish, etc., Um, existed in English and and weren't particularly nice. Waspish was first recorded by Shakespeare in the Taming of the Shrew. If I be waspish, best beware my sting. Mm. But if if you're feeling kind of quite petulant and quite spiteful, that I think had been around even before Shakespeare for uh, 50 years or so. And as we always say, he kind of popularised a lot of words rather than invented them.
1: WASP also is an acronym, isn't it, in the United States? A WASP is a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. How old is that as a as a as a word as expression?
0: Um, Let me look that up because I'm not quite sure. I'm not. I wonder if it's used anymore. Uh, Yes, Um,
1: no. I mean, I don't know. It certainly was used hmm. 50 years ago when I when I was during my gap year. Oh,
0: really? Going
1: up to New England, and I felt it was that sort of part of the world where, really, I would say, upper class American Protestant elite. That sort of thing, that where you find the WASPs. Uh, it was being used then, but whether it's used now, I really don't know. Some of our American listeners can tell us.
0: The first reference to WASP as an acronym is 1943, oh. when it's not actually meaning that. It means, or meant in the US, Women's Air Force Service Pilots. Ah. So it had a life before. And then the WASP, as you say, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, 1960s, 1962.
1: Oh, uh, well... There you go. So when I was there at the end of the 60s, it was then, it was at its peak and maybe it's sort of fallen a bit away.
0: But yeah, maybe. Anyway,
1: wasps, we, we have reservations about wasps, but we have few about butterflies.
0: Oh, Butterflies, it's just quite fitting, I think, that That the origin of the butterfly linguistically is a little bit elusive, uh, a little bit fluttery. We know we've been using it for over a thousand years and we've been trying to work out where it comes from, uh, or that, you know, where its name comes from ever since. Some people still subscribe to an old wives' tale that butterflies love to land on butter they like eating butter or attracted to the color of butter again entomologists out there um, amongst the purple people will put us right here but apparently they're attracted to butter and that may have given them their name much more likely in my book is that it's because many common butterflies have pale yellow wings just like butter.
1: I always thought it was because it was a variant on flutterby.
0: Flutterby. I know because it's Is that, it grows is that not possible? By. I mean they do
1: flutterby. Mm. What is they that do. fluttering by but a butterfly?
0: No, it's gorgeous. It's been discounted by the OED that also even less romantically introduces the idea that butterfly poo is kind of yellow coloured. Oh. Uh, so, yeah, you can take your pick. We're not completely sure where it came from, but there's the butterfly effect of course as well, isn't there? In- Chaos theory.
1: Explain that to me. I sort of nerd. I mean, the butterfly flaps its wings and the world ends or something. How does, how does the butterfly effect work?
0: Oh, gosh. Well, I'm probably not the best person to talk about this, but I think it is referring to really complex systems whose behavior is really sensitive to slight changes in conditions. So there's a smallest alteration can have strikingly huge consequences, such as a butterfly flapping its wings what do butterflies do with their wings flutter their wings um on one part of the the globe and then having an enormous effect somewhere else so in the 1970s i think it was first described in relation to the weather and the notion that butterfly fluttering in i don't know rio de janeiro could change the weather in chicago
1: and this is you relate this to something called the chaos effect and this is all this is some particular school of thinking
0: Yes, it's a branch branch of maths.
1: I mean, my, my wife thinks our life is is the chaos theory, but we neither of us know what it means. Maybe we don't need to.
0: I think you are your life is so it has to be so regimented because there's not a day goes by when you haven't got at least three engagements somewhere in the country. So I imagine that you've got spreadsheets all over your walls.
1: Would that I have. I've got an old <laughs> I've got an old fashioned diary, which I keep in pencil though, so that I can rub okay. things out. But yes, we've got to keep busy.
0: Yeah. I was reading a bit of Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy, which was this sort of massive, massive work expounding where melancholy came from. I think it was a 1,000 pages his book ran to. He spent his life studying at melancholy. And Samuel Johnson also read it and said it was the only book that would get him out of bed in the morning. Anyway, one of the one of the cures that both Samuel Johnson and Robert Burton advocated was indeed being busy.
1: Well, one of the things I've been busy doing recently, and it takes us to our next butterfly expression, is I've been busy on Sundays uh, sharing a stage with the great Dame Judi Dench. We've been doing a series of shows at the Gielgud Theatre in London on Sunday afternoons. I'm mentioning it. They're all sold out. So I'm not advertising it. I'm just telling you about it retrospectively, where I chat to Dame Judy about her extraordinary career. And we were standing in the wings about to go on. I was going to go on to introduce her. And she said, have you got butterflies? And I said, have I got butterflies? I, I, I've certainly, I've got giant butterflies in my stuff. She said, so have I. And I, I said to her, good grief, you've been doing this since the 1950s. You know, you've been doing this for a very long time. And she said, oh. It's
0: nice to know that she still Yes,
1: absolutely. There. Absolutely. I mean, and then i thought oh i wonder butterflies in one stomach i suppose it is literally the the sensation of of sort of wobbles, feeling oh no is that the origin of the phrase butterflies
0: yeah that is absolutely because it feels like little insect wings fluttering away for me it's m- much stronger than little butterfly wings i have to say but i love the fact that judy dench after all this time and and you know for such an amazing person that she still gets butterflies it's brilliant
1: i told you my my first encounter with judy dench as an actress And she told me this is a true story. It was 1960, it was the original production that she was in by Franco Zeffirelli of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, And John Stride was the young Romeo and she was a very young uh, Juliet. And I went to see this, it was the first Shakespeare. My parents took me to see it, it was a school's matinee.
0: Did you say it was after the film?
1: Oh, this is years before the film.
0: Before the film, okay. Uh,
1: Yes, it was before his, Franco Zeffirelli's famous film, yes. I think it was the first time he'd done Shakespeare, certainly in this country. And it was a very realistic, naturalistic production. It was wonderful. I remember it vividly. Peggy Mount was the nurse. Alec McCowan was Mercutio. John Stride, as I say, was Romeo. And the young Judy Dench was Juliet. I went to this school's matinee. Parents with their children. Judy Dench's parents were there. And I remember her coming on for the first time as Juliet, wearing a kind of white nightie. And, and she ran towards the nurse, the nurse played by Peggy Mount. And her opening line was, where are my mother and my father nurse and from the third row of the stalls, a voice called out, here we are, darling, Rosie. And it was <laughs> Judy Dench's dad.
0: No. Offering
1: her reassurance. Oh, that's so lovely. A- and she said, it's a, you remember it right, it really did happen. Um, oh, how amazing. Extra- did
0: the audience laugh or was it not audible to
1: everybody? I think the audience did laugh on that occasion. And certainly the audience roared when she retold the story. She told I'm such sure. amazing stories. She could be very naughty on stage. But anyway, the good news is that even the greats sometimes have butterflies in their stomachs.
0: Time to take a break, and we will be back after a nap's whisker. Does that work?
1: Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No.
0: Welcome back to Something Rhymes with Purple, where we are delving into the world, not just of etymology, but of entomology too. And I mentioned in Nat's whisker just before the break, and... Just well, forward. I've never heard of such
1: a thing. A cat's whisker, I've heard of. Cat's whiskers, the expression, "nats whisker. What's a gnat's no, whisker?
0: No, the cat's whiskers are a bit like the bee's knees, which we've already covered. But a gnat's whisker means the tiniest, tiniest margin, which is actually, interestingly, how a bee's knee also started. A bee's knee meant the sort of tiniest, tiniest thing before it became um, one of those formulas, meaning the best of everything. But we have lots of, of phrases involving insects, which are often quite curious. Some of them aren't busy as a bee. There's a real buzz around here. I've got bee in my bonnet. We talked about bees in the first uh, episode in Chenille. None of your beeswax uh, and all of that wouldn't hurt to fly. You have the attention span of a gnat, don't you?
1: I certainly do. Let's talk about something else.
0: (laughs) Not you. you. But uh, yeah, a gnat's whisker is, it's not in the OED. I've looked it up. Uh, Because it doesn't
1: exist. Cat's whisker (laughs) is the phrase. Gnat's whisker. I've never heard of it. A gnat's whisker.
0: It definitely does. I'm hoping that our producers are nodding away. Can't well, why isn't it in
1: the OED if it exists?
0: Yes. Okay, I'm going to see if I can get it in a um, standard dictionary here. Oh, gosh, I hope the purple people are with me on this one. No, they're,
1: they're, they're turning against you. Look, you are, by the purple people, you are as loved as Dame Judy Dench is by the world at large. So if you say Nat's <gasps> whisker is an old established phrase, so it is.
0: Oh, well, look, I am looking up in the Cambridge English Dictionary and it is in there, and that's whisker, how meaning the smallest thing.
1: Yeah. Cambridge believes in it, but Oxford hasn't heard of it yet. OK, tell us about its origin, how long it's been around.
0: Uh, Well, I don't know, because it's not in the OED, so I can't tell you. But I would imagine probably, I don't know, mid-1900s. I don't imagine it's been around much more than then. But we also do talk about being knee-high to a grasshopper, don't we? And that's been around since the 18th century, 1742. Oh, no, that's the first mention of knee-high. 1814 is the first mention of being knee-high, not to a grasshopper, but to a toad. Then you could be mm. knee-high to a mosquito. Then you could be knee-high to a frog, a bumbly bee, a splinter, duck in there as well. Um, finally, not until 1957, do we get to the grasshopper.
1: Gosh, knee-high to is a that grasshopper. Funny. That is funny. Yeah. And it means being... Very short. Quite short. Yes. Somebody asked me the other day who was the tallest famous person I'd met.
0: Richard Osman, surely.
1: Oh, I suppose it must be Richard Osman, who is internationally known as a wonderful writer of uh, charming detective stories.
0: Yeah, Thursday Murder Club.
1: And uh, nationally known as the host of some marvellous game shows. He is very tall. Normally, I would say, uh, I used to say, James Stewart, Jimmy Stewart. Great ah. Hollywood star. But I think Richard Osman probably is taller than him.
0: Richard Osman is almost seven feet. Yeah,
1: he is hugely yeah. tall. i have to revise that that name-dropping line of mine. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the, I, I've also met, I'm, I'm not heightist, I've also met Tom Cruise.
0: Oh, have you seen the new movie? No, is it the great? The new Top Gun. Oh, you have to see it. It's absolutely brilliant. It's so good because it just owns its cheesiness. It's fab. Yeah, I recommend it for anybody who wants some escapism.
1: What's interesting is you talk in a way that Jane Austen would not have understood it owns its (laughs) own cheesiness. She'd have been completely confused. She might have understood if you said it's fab. Would she have understood it owns its own cheesiness, it's fab. Would Jane Austen have reached for her, well, her gun? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) would she have understood any of that? No.
0: Well, she would have maybe understood fabulous to mean what we said... In our last episode, which is about Aesop's fables, where it means something kind of absurd or whatever. But no, I don't think she would have understood the sense of it's great and certainly not the cheesy bit. Anyway, but we are in the 21st century and uh, I think it owns its own cheesiness. I think hopefully most purple people will
1: know. It's a great line. Don't think I'm, I'm criticising you. Anyway, dropping like flies is another one.
0: Yes. So we don't actually know where this comes from. Um, I think at the beginning of the 20th century, it's first recorded. But there is a grim fairy tale, one of the brothers Grimm, which is a cautionary, speaking of fables, so it's a fable of a child who thoughtlessly kills lots and lots of flies. But it doesn't come directly from there. But I suppose insects have a very short life, don't they? So it's probably got quite a sort of standard meaning, I would say. But so so many insects have crept into our... Tight as a tick. Why would a tick be tight? Why would a newt be pissed for that reason?
1: Yes, tight as a tick. It's the kind of, it's the alliteration that works there, isn't it?
0: It's blood, Uh, isn't it? It's tight with the blood. Its body is tight with the blood that it sucked from you.
1: But pissed as a newt, I don't understand at all.
0: No, it used to be pissed as a thrush, if you remember from our drinking episode, because in Roman times, they would see thrushes tottering around the vineyards, having feasted on the sort of fermented grapes and uh, getting extremely uh, drunk. So you would be drunk as a thrush. Um, And now we just say pistachios a new. I don't think it really has very much meaning.
1: I can give you information about the height of James Stewart. Do you know even who I mean by James Stewart?
0: Oh, I absolutely do. My mum loves Jimmy Stewart. Exactly.
1: Well, I'm of your mother's generation, and uh, he was such a huge movie star in every sense. And he was, irritatingly, I looked it up, it says he was 1.91 metres. I had to translate that. Basically, six foot four.
0: Oh, OK. They're not that tall in current,
1: no, current climates, No, no. Really. But when I met him, he seemed, that seemed to me to be gigantic. And I think in his day, that probably was pretty magnificent. He was certainly a, a wonderful actor. Look, this is fantastic. Uh, You are fantastic with all these phrases and things. If people have got other expressions, if people want to side with me on the Nat's whisker issue, um, it's too late. I think Susie is probably (laughs) right. But if you want to correspond with us, it's easy to do. You get in touch with us. It's simply... Purple at com. Purple at com. Now, have people been in touch with us this week?
0: Oh, they're always in touch and we're very grateful for it. Yes, this is from, oh, what a name, Sky Caves. Hi Susie, Giles. I hope you're both well, big fan of the podcast. I'm hoping you can help me with an expression. I've heard the term sheep dipping used twice in the past month at work and I've no idea what it means as a colloquialism. Both times it's been used in a kind of, well, we want to avoid sheep dipping context and everyone else on the call has laughed or nodded along, so I assume they know what it means, but I'm at a loss. I tried Googling it, but just got lots of pictures of, well, sheep dipping. Really hoping you can shed some light. It's been bugging me ever since. My job, I might add, is nothing remotely farming related. And nor do I work for MI5, which is the only other thing that came up, oddly. With gratitude, Sky.
1: Great name, Sky, and great inquiry too. Sheep dipping. Explore that.
0: Okay. Well, hands up. I had no idea about this. And I I often stick up for business jargon because it gets a very hard time. Most people say it's meaningless. It's just in your, you know, just the BS bingo type thing where nobody really understands what they're saying. Sometimes, though, it can actually be really clever. And this one is clever, but obviously it's not established enough yet that people know what it means. But essentially, the idea is that you take some business leaders and in one short amount of time you dip them into a vat of information and teach them all sorts of skills supposedly and then pull them out shake them off and hope that all the lessons will have stuck but they're never tested again they're just left there they're sort of dipped once and then if they remember it great but they're never sort of assessed afterwards so most business People, I think, and business experts would say avoid sheep dipping, as Skye says, at all costs, because essentially it's just a quick dip, then you're out, and it's not very effective.
1: Excellent. Well, there we are. There, there is the answer. Thank you very much, Skye. Um, somebody else has been in touch, and this is Shelley Radon, who is inquiring about something petering out. Hi, Susie and Giles. I'm a big fan of the show, and my seven-year-old son, Zephyr, also enjoys listening. Why do we
0: say something peters out? Is this linked to a real-life Peter? I've been thinking about this phrase for a while, and I wondered if you'd be able to shed some light on its meaning. Thanks a lot, and keep up the good work. Kind regards, Shelley Radon. Such great names the
1: purple people have. Yeah, do you think they're real names? Or do you think they they just send in these false names to to get noticed? (laughs) I wonder. What would would yours be? Well, uh, yes, I want a simpler name, actually. But I'd love to be called Sky, actually.
0: Sky is gorgeous. It's a lovely, lovely name.
1: My wife's uh, maiden name is Brown, and I think that's a very useful, straightforward... Sky Brown. Tonight, it's Sky Brown. Here he is, everybody. Shelley isn't bad, and also it has echoes of the poet Shelley, and both those names are useful in the modern age because they can be used quite comfortably, male, female, whatever you are. You're a Shelley. You're a Sky. I like it. Uh, Do you see what her seven-year-old son is called while we're talking about the names? Zephyr.
0: Oh, ZEPHYR
1: which is the name for a wind isn't it a zephyr wind yeah
0: soft soft breeze but gorgeous but also
1: i bet you this is why shelly is called her son zephyr it's that delightful gorgeous monkey in the baba stories is called zephyr ah. i love baba and zephyr i heard
0: you talking about baba the elephant on um just a minute the other day oh
1: we love your name, Zephyr. We love your mother's name. We love you as a family. And you're now going to have the definitive answer from the world's leading lexicographer of the origin of the phrase <laughs> petering out.
0: Oh, dear. And the answer is we don't know. Uh, but there's, there's more to say than that. So Shelley says, Is it linked to a real life Peter? And that's not as absurd as it sounds, because as you know, Lots of names are used in English generically to mean all sorts of things, particularly when it comes to animals. Parrot goes back to Pierre or Pierrot. Magpie goes back to Marguerite. Donkey goes back to Duncan. I mean, lots of strange uses of names. And a Peter has variously meant a prison cell in Australian slang, a trunk or a safe, as well as a man's penis. Sorry, Zephyr, on, on that one. Um, but those do not seem to be related to petering out. Now, if you asked me, I would have always said it goes back to the petard that was a small bomb. It was a wooden box filled with powder and it was used to make a hole in a wall. And if you're hoisted by your own petard, you are... Everything backfires on you, essentially, literally. And that goes back to, we've talked about this just so many times, petty in French, meaning to break wind. So I would have said that petering out was a little bit like fizzling. And the first meaning of fizzling, I'm ho- hoping Zephyr is enjoying this. The first meaning of fizzle, if you remember, was to break wind quietly. So I would have said petering out is the same as fizzling out. And I'm going to stick with that. But if you look in the dictionary, I'm afraid it says origin unknown.
1: Well, I think you've offered us a comprehensive trot around the course, and you've come off the fence yourself and given us what you yeah. think it is. Actually, I ought to mention here, if you'd, if you'd like to connect with like-minded purple people around the world, there is the Something Rhymes With Purple Facebook group, uh, and it's run by a longtime friend of the podcast, Craig, uh, and his Craig. and his gorgeous guide dog, Bruce. Bruce. And uh, the group is now 500 strong and, and growing quickly. So please join the group. And if you want got questions for us, Susie is ever ready with the answers and I'm ever ready with the interruptions. It's purple at else.com. Susie, have you got a trio of interesting words for us this week?
0: I do. Um, so I'm not sure they're all particularly complimentary, these. In fact, the first one definitely isn't. And you will recognise this one from Shakespeare, Giles. Fustilarian. Do you remember in Henry IV, away you scullion, you rampallion, you fustilarian And it's essentially come into English properly to mean one who pursues worthless objects or aims. Mm. And that also links to my second word, which is one of the very big lexicon in English for working ineffectually, and that's to ploiter. And that's to work sort of half-heartedly and not achieve very much at all. And my third one is a myrmidon, M-Y-R-M-I-D-O-N. Does that ring any bells, Giles?
1: It does ring a bell, myrmidon. This is a word that occurs in literature.
0: It does. In Greek myth, or in fact, in Homer's Iliad, and the myrmidons were the kind of fanatically obedient followers of Achilles. Ah. And so myrmidon means someone who will follow somebody else to the ends of the earth, even if they have to be quite ruthless in doing so. Mm -hmm. A myrmidon. So a slavish and slightly ruthless follower of someone else.
1: Very good. Three good words. Those are my three. How about your poem? Well, maybe I've got three good poems for you. They're very, very short. um, Because I I own a lovely book called Ogden Nash's Zoo. And given that we're in the world of insects again this week, I think I've already shared with you one of my favourites, which is simply a two-line poem called The Fly. The Lord in his wisdom made the fly and then forgot to tell us why. Uh, But there are longer, slightly longer poems by him in the world of insects. I think there is one about the ant. The ant has made himself illustrious, through constant industry, industrious. So what? Would you be calm and placid if you were full of formic acid? And just one last one here, about the firefly. And, And I like this because, well, it actually goes to a mystery about the firefly. The firefly's flame is something for which science has no name. I can think of nothing eerier than flying around with an unidentified glow on a person's posterior. But isn't that interesting? The firefly's flame is something for which science has no name. And I've checked it up or tried to look it up. And, you know, fireflies, they, they, they glow, they, they're light, they seem to be. There isn't actually, uh, apparently, a technical term for that flame. That
0: luminescence, all yeah. is that amazing? Yeah. I'm not sure I've ever seen a firefly, have you?
1: Yes, I think I have around dusk in the West Indies. Oh, uh, amazing. I think I have
0: gorgeous Uh, well I really enjoyed that and I hope the purple people did as well Um, thank you for listening to us thank you for following us and please do if you would like to recommend us to friends. And please, even more importantly, get in touch. Keep getting in touch via purple at somethingelse.com. And as Giles says, do consider joining the Purple, not just the the Purple uh, Facebook Club, but also the Purple Plus Club, um, where you'll find some bonus episodes on words and language.
1: Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production produced by Lawrence Bassett and Harriet Wells with additional production from Chris Skinner, Jen Mystery, Jay Beal and...
0: Uh, well, last time I saw him, he had just a gnat's
1: whisker. It must be
0: a full-grown beard by now.
1: <sighs> He's knee-high to a praying mantis. It's gully.